So this morning, we are in week three of a series called The Upside-Down Kingdom. And the purpose of this series is really to show us what it means to live the Christian life. Uh, And so to do that, we're looking at a famous teaching Jesus gave during his time here in which he explained precisely that. So the last two weeks of this series, if you've tuned in, have really both served as introductions to the series. We looked at uh, in week one how Christianity as a lifestyle is distinct from the world. Uh, Last week, we looked at how Christianity as a lifestyle is also just as distinct from religion. So uh, starting today from here on out through this series, uh, we're going to get into the specifics of the Christian life as it's lived out, and uh, in this particular teaching, we're going to focus on how Christianity is meant to be lived out in relationships. Uh, So the passage we're going to be looking at is Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36, where Jesus said this, But I say to you who listen, love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you, and from one who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do what is good and lend expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. And this is God's Word. Now, I said that uh, in this teaching we're going to talk about relationships. And usually when we hear the word relationships, we think about things like friendship and romance and people who are close to us. And the the truth is, uh, everything that we're going to be studying today certainly applies to all those relationships. But the main purpose of this passage is to teach us how to relate, not to people who are close to us, but actually to people that we would rather keep far from us. And when you study this passage, you'll see that in it, Jesus is, is really, uh, he's talking about three different groups of people, three people that would be a whole lot easier for you and I to write off and to distance ourselves from. So what I want to do on the front end of this teaching is look at these three different groups of people and what Jesus has to say about how he expects us to treat them. So the first group of people that Jesus uh, deals with is people who have hurt you. In Luke 6, Uh, 27 through 29, Jesus says, But I say to you who listen, love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And verse 29, if anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. So in these verses, uh, Jesus is really talking about um, people you consider to be your, your enemy. Uh, People who, to quote him, um, have uh, hated you, people who have cursed you, people who have mistreated you. And and Jesus says here, not only, uh, Jesus says, not only do I not want you to pay them back, uh, he, he goes infinitely further than that. And Jesus is saying that he, he's, he's calling you and I to love them. And in case there's, there's, there's any ambiguity about what that means to love your enemies, he spells it out for us here really plainly. Uh, what it means to love your enemies is to do good to them, 
to bless them and to pray for them. In other words, Jesus is calling you and I to do everything we can to make life better for the people who have made our lives worse. All right, so that's the first group of people, people who have hurt you. The second group of people Jesus deals with here is people who have less than you. And we see this in uh, the verses immediately after that, and starting in verse 29. Jesus says, And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you, uh, and from the one who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. So first off, when Jesus talks about someone taking away your coat, he's not referring uh, to you getting robbed. Uh, what he's talking about is, is when someone in need comes to you, Jesus' expectation is that you and I would be radically generous with that individual, meaning we actively look for ways to go above and beyond just meeting their most pressing, most dire needs, which is, of course, exactly what we would want somebody to do for us if we were in the same position. Uh, a guy named Earl Ellis, who, who wrote a commentary on Luke, he, he reflected on this passage, and I thought what he had to say was helpful here. He said, Christ is not here advocate, advocating perfunctory, not a word you hear every day, perfunctory or even large gifts to the poor. He enjoins a moral concern that will express itself in a spirit of self-denial in every encounter in life and will do this for the sake of the kingdom of God. So what, what, what he's talking about here is being so concerned for people who have less than you that you don't do anything without thinking of them. Meaning you don't write up a budget, you don't go on a vacation, you don't even go to the store without actively looking for ways to limit yourself so that you can have enough left over to help those who have less than you. So, so just to drive this one home, I just want to be crystal clear here, Jesus is not here talking about just being generous and just being willing to give when a specific need presents itself in our lives, when somebody specifically asks us um, or you know, somebody passes a plate at church or you know, somebody brings up some kind of cause at work. What Jesus is talking about here is a lifestyle of generosity in which you and I are so concerned with people who have less than us that it causes us to actually spend less on ourselves so that we have more left over for them. All right, so that's people who have less than you. The third group of, of people Jesus talks about here is people who are different than you. And he talks about them in verses 32 through 36. Jesus says, <clears throat> he says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do what is good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful just as your father also is merciful. So in these verses, Jesus is speaking against loving only those who love you, are good to you, and can repay you. And to explain what Jesus means here, let me, let me kind of use an analogy that I think um, you know, maybe, maybe might hit home for some of us. So let's say uh, you, whoever you are, whoever you are t- tuning into this, let's say that you uh, belong to a particular political party. That seems to be a really divisive issue in, in, in our uh, culture these days. Let's say that you belong to a particular political party or you belong to a particular racial group or, or really any group. Uh, no matter who you are, Everybody in, in the human race has this tendency uh, 
to form smaller groups with people who are, are, are like them in the context of society at large. You see this as early on as elementary school. It, it, it's, it's one of the few things that people seem to do even if they're never taught it. It's just what people naturally do. And when, when you see people who, who are part of another group, uh, whether that's another you know, political affiliation or that's another um, race or that's another income level or that's another sexual orientation or whatever it is, religious belief system, whatever it is, when, when, when you see and, and, and when we all see people who are part of a, a, another group that doesn't belong to ours, at best, you probably have a tendency to not really respect them. You think their, their, their lifestyle is odd or their beliefs are wrong and you just kind of scratch your head and maybe look down on them a little bit even though you wouldn't admit that. that, that that's the best case scenario. At worst what will happen is people will look at people from another group and they'll say, you know what, that group of people is what's really wrong with society. Uh, you might even be civil to people who are not like you or are part of a different group in some way, shape, or form. You might be civil to them, but you're not going to open up your home to them. You're not going to open up your purse to them. You're not going to open up your life to them like you would people who are just like you. And what Jesus is basically saying here is everybody's like that. What, what, what this means is everybody goes through life sort of like this. You walk into a room with people and, and you immediately ask yourself, are these my kinds of people? Are they the kind of people that I want to associate with? Are they the kind of people that can benefit me in some way, shape, or form? Uh, religious people do this just as much as worldly people do this. All right, so, so let's say, you know, for, for, for the sake of analogy, let's say you're a worldly person, uh, you, you walk into a room full of people, and the first question you're going to ask yourself is, are these the kinds of people that can benefit me socially so that I can advance in all the ways that I want to advance? Or, or you'll ask the question, are these the kind of people that can benefit me psychologically? Can they make me feel the way that I want to feel about myself? And if as you kind of size them up and, and, and see them and, and, and basically judge them, if you decide that they're not cool enough or they're not successful enough, they haven't achieved enough, they're not good looking enough for you, then you might tolerate them. You know, you might actually be civil toward them, but eventually you're going to discard them. You're going to look at them as really more of an object than a person. And when they don't check all the boxes on your list, you're, you're, you're going to write them off and be done with them. And religious people do the exact same thing. It just might happen to manifest itself a little bit differently. Religious people walk into the same environment and they look around and they size people up just like worldly people do. Um, and, and religious people... Uh, you'll remember this if, if you were here with us last week. Religious people need to feel good about themselves because they're basing their entire lives on their ability to keep the rules and live a good life and be a good person. And so they need constant assurance that they're doing that. And so they see the people around them in any given setting and they ask the question, all right, are these good people? And are these people that can make me look good? And can they help me get accepted by the people that I need to be accepted by so that I can be okay with myself? What Jesus is explaining in these verses is basically everybody's playing that game. All right, sinners do it one way, religious people do it a different way, but what Jesus is saying here is that his followers would do something different. What he's saying is that genuine followers of Jesus, genuine Christians, would be the kind of people who go through life actively looking for opportunities to do for people who are very different than them what the rest of the world only does for people who are just like them. So, so before I move forward here, I, I, I just want to highlight something that dawned on me as I was studying this passage that, that, that maybe has dawned on you um, as well. Lots of religions contain a code of ethics that's kind of similar to every other religion, every other major belief system. But with what we just looked at, from what Jesus is saying here, Christianity has parted ways with other belief systems. 
Because when Jesus says not just to you know, practice passive resistance toward your enemies and not just to not pay your, your enemies back, but to actually love the people who have caused you the most pain, and when he talks about practicing radical generosity to people who have less than you and, and therefore nothing to offer you, and when he talks about going through life looking, actively looking for ways to share with and serve people who are profoundly different than you out of love and respect for them, Christianity is saying something different. It's going further than any other belief system goes. And, and I kind of touched on this at the beginning of this teaching, but when you look at these three groups of people that Jesus talks about here, people who have hurt you, people who have less than you, people who are different than you, one of the things that all, all, all three of these groups of people have in common is that they are a lot easier to just write off. And what I mean by that is, and I think you can agree with this, I think everybody can agree with this, your life is going to be a lot easier if you just write off people who hurt you. Your life is going to be a lot easier if you write off people who have less than you, because then they can't cost you anything. Your life's going to be a lot easier if you just write off people who are different than you. Because then you don't have to think through what you really believe. You don't have to open up your life. You don't have to have those kind of awkward conversations and situations and, and you know, love people without feeling superior to them or trying to change them or, or any of that kind of stuff. It's easier to write these kinds of people off. But what Jesus' words here in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 36, leave us with is, is one central idea. It's really the main idea of, of this week's teaching that I wanted to leave you with. The idea is this. The evidence that you belong to Jesus is found in the way you treat people who are easy to write off. Meaning, according to this passage, the mark that you really are a Christian, instead of simply a religious person or or an irreligious person, the mark that you really are a follower of Jesus is going to be found in the attitude that you have toward people who have hurt you, have less than you, and are deeply different than you. So the question that you and I should ask ourselves at this point, and and you want to talk about a convicting, kind of soul-bearing question. The question this passage demands we ask ourselves is, how do you treat those people? Do you hold a grudge against those people for the way that they've hurt you? Do you look for ways to pay those people back to make them feel what they made you feel? Do you write them off entirely or or do you just harbor a a, a kind of sense of, a a smug sense of superiority toward those kind of people? Or do do you forgive the people who have caused you the most pain? And more than just forgiving them, do you actively look for ways to love and serve them without any sense of superiority toward them? Because what Jesus is saying here is that's how you can know that you belong to me. Now, at this point in this teaching, I would think two ideas are coming to your mind because to be perfectly honest with you, they're the two ideas that came to my mind over and over again as I just looked at what Jesus is calling us to here. The first idea is, I don't think I can do this. And the second idea is, I'm not even sure I want to. This is fine to talk about in a teaching on a Sunday morning or whatever day of the week you happen to be tuning in, but to actually think about to think through the implications of what Jesus is calling you and I to do here. Loving enemies, blessing those who curse us. I mean, this is, I think this is the most convicting part in all of the Sermon on the Mount, and I think it's the most difficult thing to walk in. But there's two things that Jesus says in this passage, almost, 
almost in response to the thoughts he knew that his words would raise in our minds. And what Jesus' what Jesus's words show us here is, uh, on the one hand, he, 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 t- he tells us a lot about ourselves and explains why it is so difficult for you and I to do this. And then he goes on to tell us what needs to happen in our lives, what we need to internalize in our lives if we want to do what he's calling us to do. So, so first of all, let me ask a question that maybe you never thought about. Uh, first question is, why is this so hard to do? Right? Everybody knows it's hard to love people who have hurt us. You know that it's hard to love people who have hurt you. But maybe you've never asked yourself, well, why is it? Why, what makes it so hard to love people who have hurt us, who have insulted us, who have challenged us, who have damaged our ego? Why is that so hard? And, and what Jesus does, interestingly enough, is he answers that question, but ironically enough, He does so by asking a question of his own. Actually, three times in this passage, Jesus asks the same question. Whenever you see that kind of repetition in Scripture, that's basically the Bible's way of telling us that we should really sit up and take notice to what we're reading. In Luke 6, verses 32 through 34, uh, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Verse 33, if you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? And then again in 34, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Three times in those verses, Jesus asked the same question. And what's interesting is that the Greek word that gets translated credit in my version of the Bible is the New Testament word for grace or you know, unmerited love. It's a kind of love that is totally unearned and undeserved on the part of the recipient of this love. So so basically, you could read that question. It's, it's, It's when Jesus says, what credit is that to you? It's like he's saying, if you only love those who love you back, who can love you back, who will love you back, it's like he's asking, what grace, what unmerited love is there in that? Or, Or maybe better stated, it's like he's asking, what grace or, or what unmerited love is there in you? See, what he's saying is that if, if you go through life and you're only loving people who can, who can pay you back somehow, who can, who can give you some, some kind of payoff, whether that's emotional, whether that's uh, social, or whether that's psychological, what Jesus' words mean here is that if that's how you go through life, not only are you not loving people well, but you're actually not loving people at all. What you're doing is you're not loving them, you're loving what they can give you, and so you're, you're really loving your own ego, and you're using them as a means to feed your own ego. They're just a means to an end for you. And the reason that, that all people naturally do this and, and again, this is kind of what Jesus' question forces us to face in ourselves. The reason that all people naturally go through life this way is because we're all naturally operating out of a deficit of grace and love. So, so think about it this way. Let's say that you're an investor and you are absolutely, you have more money than you know what to do with. You are Scrooge McDuck swimming in your money vault. If that's the situation that you're in in life as an investor, then when an investment opportunity presents itself to you, you're going to throw money at it even if it doesn't succeed. Because you have so much cash on hand, you're able to freely give it away without necessarily needing it to pay off every single time. But let's say, for sake of argument, you're an investor and you have barely any cash on hand. You're literally scraping the bottom of the barrel. If that's your situation and you really need to make a major profit on your next investment, then you're going to be much more careful about who and what you invest in. You're going to make people jump through hoops to get any money from you at all 
And you're only going to invest in that which you know is a surefire payoff for you because you can't afford to lose what little you have. Basically what Jesus is explaining here with this question that he asks us three times in a row, he's explaining that every single person on the face of the earth is an investor with barely any cash when it comes to love and grace. See, what we see in the story of the Bible, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered the world and, and basically broke everything, the very, one of the very first effects that sin had on people was this, this, this cosmic existential awareness that there was something wrong with them. And that's what sin does to all of us. So the, the Bible teaches that across the board, what, regardless of what front people can put up, regardless of what mask people can put on, every single one of us is deeply unsure of who we are. We're aware, to one degree or another, every single one of us, we are deeply aware that there are flaws within us that are beyond our reach that we're powerless to do anything about. And and so in a very real sense, in a cosmic sort of existential way, every single one of us has this insecurity within us. And it's that insecurity, it's that, that deficit of love and grace that causes us to make distinctions about who we love and who we befriend and who we associate with. All of that, all of the way that we relate to the people around us is just an outworking of what's going on inside of us. And so because we're all operating from this deficit, we're not really loving people for the sake of those people, which means we're not really loving people at all. What we're doing is we're a lot more like investors, investing in relationships with the hope that those relationships are going to pay off. And if you really think about this, and if you really do some soul searching in your own life, this is why it's so hard for us to absorb offenses from other people. This is why it's so hard for us to just overlook it and let it go when somebody doesn't make us feel appreciated, even when we went out of our way to invest in them. It's why every single one of us, to one, to one degree or another, in some way, shape, or form, has a tendency to use people to feel good about ourselves. And to quote Jesus' question here, there's no unmerited love or grace in that because there's no unmerited love or grace in us. Now that is a huge problem that, that frankly I think can explain a whole lot about our interactions with other people. But the question is, what's the solution to that problem? And that comes at the very end of this passage in Luke chapter 6, verses 35 through 36. Where Jesus says, Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Verse 36. Be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. Now, I'm going to make a bold statement here. If you and I can internalize what Jesus is saying here, if we can understand and take into our hearts what Jesus is saying here, then it will give you and it will give me the emotional, the psychological, and the spiritual footing that we need to go out into the world and love people the way that Jesus prescribes here. But it all depends on whether or not we understand what Jesus is saying here. So what's he saying? It boils down to just two things. First off, Jesus reminds us that we will be, you and I will be, you will be sons of the Most High. Now, Earl Ellis, who I quoted earlier, wrote a commentary on Luke, reminds us that we have to be really careful when we read this particular verse. Because if you rip it out of context, it might seem like it's saying that if we love people well enough, then we can, you know, through our loving people well enough, become sons and daughters of God. But here's what he has to say about this passage. He says, This is spoken to disciples for whom God is already their father. 
What Jesus is doing here is inviting his disciples. Think about this. He says, what Jesus is doing here is inviting his disciples to actualize in their ethic the meaning of their relationship. They're called to be what they are. What, what, what this means is that what a Christian has to understand, I mean, if, 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 you, if you're listening to this and you've already committed your life to Jesus, probably the most important thing for you to understand throughout your life, if you want to do anything that Jesus calls us to do in, in the Sermon in the Mount or elsewhere, we have to understand about our relationship with God that we have been adopted. All right, so, 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 so what is adoption? Well, in, in, in Jesus' way, you can read about this in Galatians chapter 4, Paul talks about it, that how the moment we put our trust in Jesus, uh, we're adopted into the family of God. And, and, and uh, it was a really significant process because in, in Jesus' day in the Roman Empire, uh, it, was, it was really common if somebody was, was older and very wealthy but didn't have any biological children of their own, it was a really common practice for them to just decide to adopt another adult person and, and make that person their heir. Uh, and when that happened, the life of that adoptee changed dramatically, it changed instantly, it changed permanently, but here's the key, even though the person who got adopted did absolutely nothing to earn it. All right, so first off, adoption meant you have newfound wealth. All right, you might have been totally poverty-stricken before you got adopted, but the moment that you were adopted by a wealthy person, you were, ex- you were exactly as rich as they were. All that they had was now legally yours as well. Again, even though you did nothing to earn that wealth. But not only did adoption mean a newfound wealth, it also meant a newfound relationship because suddenly this person who adopted you is not just your CEO, He's not just uh, your role model. He's not just your landlord or your boss or whatever. This person actually is your father, which means that because of this relationship, um, you now have a new intimacy with him that you, could, you never had access to before that you had access to now. You now had a, 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 a sense of permanency with him. That relationship is never going to be severed. But you also had a profound kind of accessibility with the person who adopted you because you know, think of it this way, a CEO's employees cannot knock on his bedroom door at 2 a.m. asking for milk and expect that to go well. But a CEO's sons or daughters can. And all of that is implied in Jesus' words here. All of that happens the moment that you put your trust in Jesus, meaning the moment that you trust in Jesus to be your Lord and to be your Savior, regardless of what you've done, regardless of people who have written you off, regardless of mistakes that you've made, and regardless of how much your life still needs to you know, get cleaned up from here on out. In other words, regardless of how far you still are from the finished product, the moment that you put your trust in Jesus, you are loved deeply, you are loved permanently, you are loved unconditionally. And so before we go an inch further here, I just I want to ask specifically all the people listening to me right now who have put their trust in Jesus, I just want to ask you a really personal question. Do you understand your adoption? Do you understand how, how Jesus has completely revolutionized your relationship with God and have you really built your life on that? When you're feeling condemned, when you're feeling like a failure, when, or even when you're feeling really arrogant, when, you're, when you start to feel superior to other people, do you go back to the, to the reality of your adoption as your source of strength and your source of identity from which your life flows? Right, that's the first thing that we need to understand if we want to love the way that Jesus is calling us to here. But the second thing that Jesus says here we need to put our hands on, Jesus says that God is kind to both the, uh, the ungrateful 
and the evil. And so basically what Jesus is saying is, I want you to be kind like your Father in heaven because he's been gracious toward his enemies. And in case you hear that and you're wondering, well, who are God's enemies? The answer is you are and I am. That, that, might, be, that might be a strange thing for somebody tuning in to hear. That might even be an offensive thing. I certainly don't mean it to be offensive, but I, 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 I do want you to understand this is a really important thing to grasp, that a Christian is someone who understands him or herself as an adopted enemy. All right, two things there. First off, you're an enemy. Neither religious people nor irreligious people consider themselves enemies of God for different reasons. But a, a, a Christian, that's unique to, to Christianity. So one of the ways that you can know that you're a Christian and one of the ways that you can be sure that you're basing your relationship with God on his grace instead of your works is that you have come to realize deeply within yourself that in and of yourself, apart from Jesus, you are nothing more than an enemy of God. That you have lived you know, resentful of his claim over your life. You, you know, there's been times in your life when you've lived in open rebellion to him. But there's also times in your life when, you, when you've, you've tried to live really good. But, but you know, becoming a Christian really means coming to face the reality that even the good things that you've done, you realize now, were just a subtle form of rebellion against God because you weren't really serving him. You were trying to get him to serve you through your good works, believing that if you lived a good enough life, he would owe you some kind of life. And that's not obedience to God. That's, that's actually trying to manipulate God. That's the opposite of obedience. So a Christian is someone who can say, on the one hand, I'm an enemy. But on the other hand, I'm also adopted. And when you put those two things together, those two truths together, and you internalize them in your heart and allow them to work out through your life, it will completely, radically change who you are. But it is, it is equally important to grasp both of those things. Because knowing that you're an enemy will keep you from ever looking down on anyone else. Right? When you can hold it in your mind and in your heart that apart from Jesus, you're naturally an enemy of God, it'll keep you from ever looking down on anybody for anything that they've ever done or are currently caught up in. And it will also keep you from losing hope that anybody might come into the family of God one day. Because you'll know that you were exactly as far from God before you met Jesus as that person is now. So first off, knowing that you're an enemy will keep you from looking down on others, but knowing that you're adopted will keep you from looking down on yourself. Because you'll know that despite everything that you've done or everything that you've failed to do, you are, you're a child of the Most High God. And that's never, ever going to change. And the only reason that God can adopt us into his family is because, like Jesus says here, he chose to demonstrate his kindness to us even while we were his enemies. And the ultimate place that we see that is the cross that Jesus would go on to be crucified on just a couple of years after giving this teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And on the cross, what we see is Jesus doing what he commands us to do here. On the cross, we see Jesus, even though he's being cursed, he's responding with blessing. And even though he's being mistreated, he's praying for the forgiveness of his murderers, of those who tortured him, of those who mocked him, of those who cost him his very life. And so in this sermon and in this passage specifically, Jesus is not saying be like this because I'm like this. He's saying be like this for other people because I'm going to be like this for you. And when you see and when, when I see, when we see that on the one hand we were so lost that Jesus had to die for us, but on the other we were so loved that he was glad to die for us, then what, we, what begins to happen is this deficit that Jesus talks about begins to be healed. And then slowly but surely, 
will be able to offer unmerited love and grace to the people around us because we've come to experience it ourselves. And when that happens, then we'll stop treating people like a means to our end. We'll stop loving them with an agenda and we'll love them and we'll forgive them and we'll share with them and we'll open up our lives to them regardless of how they respond to any of that. And when you see people, I mean, once, once the gospel, the truth of what God has done for you in Jesus and all it means to you, once that gospel really begins to take root in your life, then as you go through life and you see other people, no matter how broken they are, you'll be able to say, man, I was broken too. And no matter how mistaken they are, you'll be able to say, I was mistaken too. And no matter how hostile they are toward you, you'll be able to say, yeah, but I was hostile toward my own Savior. And even that didn't stop him from laying down his life for me. And when that begins to become real to you and take root in your life, you'll never be the same again. You'll never be the same again. So, so listen, as we close here, you know, living in the corona era, I, I've been uh, kind of keeping my ear to the ground, listening for different buzzwords. And, and one that I keep hearing is, uh, you know, all these shortages that we're experiencing or we're going to experience. And I don't know, you've probably heard those same things too. I, I hear about, you know, how we have a shortage of, of PPE, of personal protective equipment. You know, there's a, there's a shortage of, of uh, you know, equipment and, and, and ventilators and, and, you know, personnel and tests and all this kind of stuff. And, and, you know, please don't misunderstand me. We need all those things. And it'd be great if we had those things. But as I was reflecting on Jesus' words here and putting this teaching together, it just dawned on me that, that to me, the greatest shortage that mankind has suffered from ever since that terrible day in Genesis chapter 3 when sin started making a mess of everything, the greatest shortage that mankind has suffered from is the kind of love that Jesus talks about here. And on a personal note, maybe you can sympathize with this, but on a personal note, I want to be the kind of person who can offer this kind of love for the sake of my kids, for the sake of my wife, for the sake of you all, my church. And I want to be the kind of person that can offer this kind of love for the sake of a world who could really use it right about now. But the bottom line is we, we just can't give something that we don't have. And so if, if you and I, if we want to be agents of unmerited love and grace to the people that God places around us, then we need to come to a deep and personal experience of unmerited love and grace through a relationship with Jesus. And there's a lot of great things about Jesus. That's a whole other sermon in and of itself, but, but maybe one of the greatest things about Jesus is that he has exactly that. He has love that nothing can separate you from and grace that abounds above and beyond every failure in your life and in my life. He has that kind of love and that kind of grace for absolutely anybody who comes to him and puts their trust in him to be their Lord and their Savior. And that's the key to having an upside-down love. That's it. And that's all.